shock the system. Welcome to Dank Discussions with your host, Calican CEO, Maynard Breslow. In each episode, you'll learn from the trailblazers, leaders, entrepreneurs, and influencers in the ever-moving, ever-growing cannabis industry. Hey everybody, welcome to Dank Discussions. Today we have an amazing treat, you know, talking about the cannabis industry, um, having amazing, uh, amazing stuff going on here. Today we're joined by Razor Andrew Lopez. He is, uh, he's been a cult- cultivator, distributor of cannabis, cannabis products in 1978. You know, uh, talk about OG, we throw that name around. That's somebody who's really been around. He's a true serial cannabis entrepreneur, the founder of uh, companies such as Mystic Spring Farms, OG Razor Grown, uh, Good Weed Enterprises, to name a few. Um, so really grateful to have on today. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us today, Razor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure's all mine. Today we're going to be talking about some cool things. You know, I mean, for sure we're going to be talking about some cool stories that you have going back, um, you know, from the legacy market and talk about kind of that transition um, from the legacy to regulatory um, I'm sure we're going to talk on some, uh, you know, Prop 64 stuff and your feelings on that. Um, and also, you know, seeing as how you, you've been doing this for so long, you know, I got to pick your brain about some genetics, um, you know, and everything else that's going on, you know, in terms of production, scaling up and everything like that. Um, so I got a lot of cool stuff to talk about, but I guess, you know, we'll t- start it off easy. I guess, you know, let our listeners know where you're based out of today. Uh, today I'm uh, working out of Desert Hot Springs. I'm at uh, Coachillon. Uh, business park which is a development down here in desert hot springs uh it's about 140 acres um so far there's about a hundred thousand square feet of development built uh greenhouses and indoor and so we're working on more in uh conjunction with those guys um yeah so um i'd love yeah. to hear you know take me back to the seventies, take me back to how you, how you got your start, you know, and, uh, you know, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit of, uh, getting up to, you know, the, the legacy, you know, taking, I mean, to regulatory, you know, 215, 64, all that fun stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, so basically, I mean, I got my start before I was even born really like my great grandmother lived in New Mexico and she was the daughter of a woman that had a trading post and um, her father was a Mescalero Apache and her mother was like an Irish immigrant and um, they had a trading post together in New Mexico. And um, she had learned a lot from the indigenous people from the Diné and the Mescalero Apaches about uh, different plants that were useful in medicine and um, the cannabis plant was one of them. And so she grew cannabis and it was legal back then. You know, it was a thing that a lot of people did out in the rural areas, mm-hmm. um, especially along the border in New Mexico and Arizona and California. And so um, she made medicine tinctures out of it and stuff. And when I was born um, and my grandmother would like care for me, when I was teething, she would rub a tincture made from mezcal and cannabis on my gums. And that would keep me from crying. It would soothe me, you know? So it was like, that was my first uh, interaction with cannabis. And, um, you know, 
uh, like from then on, I was, I was around it. I, I, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, but at the age of one, my mom brought me out to California to live with her mom. And um, she had 11 kids. Three of them were in a, it was a San Bernardino, California, Purdue, they called it. Three of them were involved in a motorcycle club that was a local motorcycle club that kind of became famous. And um, so I had some uncles that raised me and some aunts that were involved in growing cannabis when it was illegal. And um, they were also, you know, they were involved in transporting it and selling it and everything. And, you know, so I was around it a lot before I ever smoked it. I saw it out on the coffee table. I learned how to roll joints before I knew how to smoke joints because I would roll joints for the older people. And, uh, you know, none of this is like approved of by anyone, but I was kind of a troubled kid. And I got to tell you, the cannabis plant brought me peace. It was something that I was drawn to right away. And, and it was something that helped balance me at a young age. So I, I don't think I would be around if it wasn't for my interaction with cannabis. So, um, you know, I think I was uh, 11 years old when one of my uncles sold me my first lid is we called them lids back then. And um, I think it was $10 for the lid. So it was about an ounce and a half of weed. And I rolled 10 joints out of it and sold 10 joints for a dollar each and um, gave him the 10 bucks. And I had all this weed left over and that was my start in the business basically wow. at 11? I was 11 years old. And I had a big bag of weed left after I paid for the bag. And, um, you know, so I just kind of kept doing that. And, uh, I, I had been helping them water plants, but I'd never been involved in the actual harvesting and the trimming part. Mm-hmm. And, um, one year, you know, I was, they were getting ready to take a bunch of plants up and I had, uh, I had kind of gone out on my own. I was 14 years old and, you know, had a, had a falling out with my mom and my stepdad and, um, went out on my own and, um, you know, it was summertime or it was about to be summertime. And I just, I said, could I get some of these plants to grow on my own? And, you know, it was family skunk. It was like, a really sought after genetic back then was like the skunk genetics that were, uh, you know, really well guarded and, and, and sought after. So they gave me 12 female plants and I took them to this place. I took them to Hollywood actually of all places. And there was, uh, these old cowboy stuntmen that lived in this trailer, um, set up on this, uh, horse. It was like, in the Hollywood Hills, you could go and you could pay like five bucks to go on a horse ride through the hills with one of these guys. And they were like busted up old cowboy stuntmen from like the forties and fifties. And so this was like 1978. And I took these 12 plants and I planted them in one of their old corrals that they didn't use. And we boarded up the sides of it so you couldn't see in. And the 12 plants got me about 35 pounds at the end of the season. And I mean, you know, for a teenager in LA, uh, 1978, 35 pounds of, you know, pure skunk was like, that was a come up, you know, that was a pretty 
amazing thing to have, you know? And because I had boarded it up so high, it didn't get pollinated, so there was no seeds. So it was true sensomia. And that was like the hard thing to do back then, like, you know, because you didn't know who was growing, what kind of weed plants where. So it was really hard to find a place where you could plant a crop of female plants and have them not get seeded. And I, was, I pulled that off my first time, you know, really more out of luck than knowing what I was doing. But that got me started, you know, that 35 pounds, I parlayed that into, you know, growing more into Panga Canyon and the Beechwood Canyon the next year. And then the year after that, I was up in Santa Cruz, up in, uh, you know, outside of Santa Cruz in Felton and, um, you know, growing up there for a season. And then eventually I got up into Marin County, into West Marin County, uh, the western side of Mount Tamalpais. And then, you know, I moved up into Mendocino, Spy Rock. And, um, you know, uh, then I, about 84, I got a spot up in uh, Alder Point in Humboldt. And, um, you know, so mostly I was growing outdoor up until 84, 85. In 83, I had taken a trip to um, the Middle East because a friend of mine who was in the Marine Corps had been at the barracks that were bombed in uh, Beirut. And he was, uh, he was discharged, you know, because he had been there at the bombing and he helped clean up and stuff. And, you know, he sent a letter to me saying that he was like thinking of ending his life. He couldn't take it. He couldn't go on. And I had been, you know, since I was born in Brooklyn, I got sent back to Brooklyn, New York every year as a kid for like a month in the summertime, which at first was kind of like not the greatest thing. You know, I would have rather been in California in the summer. But then when I started like having bags of weed and I would go back to New York City in like (laughs) August, you know, you show up in August with a bag of green weed in New York City back then, you're like the king, you know? So it's like, uh, once I picked up on that hustle really good, then that's what I started doing. You know, I started spending like a month out of the summer in New York City, like, cause they would have a drought, you know, it'd be all brown weed with seeds and stems. And I would show up with my nice fresh green weed from Cali. And, um, and I think we take that for granted, huh? You know, yeah, that-, so that, that was, uh, that was one of my first like kind of lessons that propelled me in, you know, where I could make money and bring it back to California and rent property or lease property or pay someone to let me have a little section of their land to grow on. And I just started expanding after that. And at the same time, I was trying to learn the indoor growing thing because I had read about it and I had met these guys out in the desert that were growing orchids and greenhouses. And so, you know, I learned a lot about where they got their lights and their medium and what mediums they use for hydroponics and stuff. And, you know, everything pointed towards Amsterdam. So I started in 1980, I started going to Amsterdam every year after harvest. And, um, you know, that you would just go there, you would meet the people in Amsterdam that were running cafes and, you know, there was genetics being exchanged. Um, yeah, it was a thriving thing until high times came along and kind of ruined it. But, you know, like all, all good things have to come to an end at some time. And um, I got what I needed to get out of Amsterdam. I learned a lot. 
And then I started trying to grow indoor. I had a, in Oakland, California, I had a warehouse in um, 87. And um, that was doing all right. And I learned a lot. But then the earthquake hit in 89 and San Francisco was wide open. And you could get like whole flat apartments in, you know, certain areas for cash, which was like unheard of before. So the thing about San Francisco that was so good is you could run more grow lights without having to have air conditioning because the air is so cold at night. And if you run your lights at night, you just vent outdoor air and mm. to cool the lights off. So you could like run a whole bunch more lights, you know, up until then it was like four to six lights was as high as you could go because it would get too hot. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I was able to run 10, 20 lights in a railroad flat apartment. And so then my, my indoor started like being more proficient. And, um, you know, I just, I remember like, I think it was 91, I was in New York city and I was selling my outdoor and I had a couple of pounds of indoor, you know, and um, this guy was like, how much for that? And I, I kind of just was, I kind of just like shrugged and I'm like, I don't know, make me an offer. And he's like, I'll give you 3000 a pound for it. And I was like, that's the most I'd ever sold a pound of weed for up until that point. So I was like, sure. This is like 91. No, but where? Uh, this is in New York city. How, how are you getting it from, you know, you start off going every summer, right? Spending a month over there and you're like, holy shit. Like, oh man, I, I mean, like, how are you like, getting it over there? That was part of the huddle. You, I, you know, I had to learn different ways to smuggle. Like, you know, I mean, I tried the Greyhound bus thing with the duffel bag. I got into train hopping. Like we would fill duffel bags, the tall, like army bags that they, they give guys to move their gear around when they get, um, you know, as they get out of boot camp, that mm -hmm. big duffel that goes with them everywhere. So I started, um, you know, I had a, quite a few uncles and their friends who had, you know, been in Nam and stuff, and they had all these old big duffel bags. So I would take those things and, you know, fill them up with weed. And then I would like, I learned how to hop trains from California to New York. And I'd just strap one of those on my back and, you know, be like a little train hopper. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you saw pictures of me back then, dude, I had like dreads. It was like the eighties. I was. You weren't like, so inconspicuous then. Huh? It wasn't like. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> but I mean, it was like I just hung in those areas where, like, you know, I hung out in the Lower East Side. I lived in squats in the Lower East Side, and I lived like, you know, in West Oakland, and like, you know, down by the Fillmore in San Francisco. So, like, I didn't really stand out. You know, I was just like this yeah. dirty kid with dreadlocks. You know. And um, that was kind of how I got away with it back then was just, uh, you know, I, I was I knew that I wasn't going to be able to board some airplane with a bunch of weed. It was not going to be how I got away with it. I knew I was going to have to kind of do it down and dirty. That was just how I'd been doing things. So it started kind of paying off in the 90s and the early 90s. And by then I had spread a lot of genetics around NorCal that I had brought on that trip to the Middle East, I probably brought like, you know, two and a half kilos of seeds from different areas. I went from uh, Bekaa Valley in Lebanon all the way through Afghanistan. And this was back when the Soviets were um, occupying Afghanistan. Wow. And so it was, uh, it was pretty, 
it was a pretty crazy three months, you know, that I spent like going through, you know, the steps of the Himalayas and then came down to Kashmir while there was a border war going on with the, between Pakistan and India. And then, um, you know, and I'd hitched a ride with these guys that were smugglers that drove these trucks from, you know, India to Afghanistan. And like, they had a dude who was this expatriate Afghani warlord that lived in Goa, India. And so like, you know, just, it just ended up being this weird coincidence that these guys were able to take me on this trip because I had all these seeds that I had stashed in my duffel bag and I didn't know how I was going to get them out of there. And then I hitched a ride on this truck and then I got to Goa and then I met people in Goa and like hung out for a couple of weeks there and then met a guy that had a boat and was able to go on the boat to Thailand and then take another boat from Thailand to Bali wow. and then take a boat from Bali to Hawaii. And then I ended up in Hawaii with all these seeds and I, I gave, I had an uncle that lived on the big island. I gave him a bunch of seeds. I went to Maui for a week, spread some seeds there. And then I came back to NorCal and, um, cause it was spring by then. So it was springtime. It was ready to plant. And I had millions of seeds and from like all through the middle East. And so I just started, uh, going through like a pheno hunt, you know, I didn't know, what to call it, but I knew I had to find the best plants. So I just like literally went to several different farms where I was growing. Like we call them farms, but they were really just hidden patches up in the middle of nowhere. And they weren't like farms like people have today. Mm -hmm. Like you, you had like your living quarters were like in a little tunnel or like hidden, you know, in a little like lean to that you made in the bushes and you always wanted to avoid the poison oak because it was everywhere. And to just make a place where you could like set up a sleeping bag and a cot and a gas lantern. And, you know, then you wanted to make, find a spring and like make a spring box that you could fill with spring water. And then you could, you know, if you did it right, you could use gravity to feed your crop year round. You know, you could like set up bamboo um, hollow tubing or, you know, uh, eventually we, you would learn to use PVC pipe. But, um, in the beginning it was just bamboo tubes that ran downhill to feed the crop. And then you would set those things up. And, um, with all these new seeds that I had, I was able to like really get some amazing results. You know, I, I really got to learn. Yeah. Uh, and I got to, on that trip, I learned a lot about hash making, so I, I really got into making hashish and that became, uh, you know, whether through sift or through cold water extraction, you know, making hash was a big thing. I had a big market at the time for hash on the East coast. Cause I, I knew a lot of people that were, you know, middle Eastern people or Mediterranean people that loved to smoke hash. And, you know, they were having to import, their hash from the Middle East. And I started making this hash that was like, you know, as good as, if not better than the Middle Eastern hash. So I was able to compete with that market. And I started a little delivery service. I had worked for a delivery service a couple months out of every year when I was in New York City. And this dude called the Pope, who was kind of famous. Uh, he was a digger, he was a hippie guy. 
And, uh, but then he went and like put the 800 number out for his delivery service on this TV show and it got busted. So um, a bunch of us that had been a part of his delivery service, we started to uh, work for um, the, our own delivery services. And I, I built my own up, you know, where I covered like a lot of the Lower East Side, Upper West Side. And uh, really my bread and butter was like Wall Street and like the World Trade Center and stuff like, you know, and I get all my guys outfitted like real delivery dudes with badges so that they could get into the buildings. And, and, you know, that was pretty lucrative. That was like, when you can like start at the wholesale level of creating the product and then break it all the way down to retail where you're selling the dime bags, then, you know, you're, you're going to make a lot of money, but my overhead was huge. You know, I, I had so many people on my payroll. I was paying for so many different rents and leases and different ways to smuggle stuff that it was like, you know, I made a lot of money, but I spent it really fast too, just on keeping the thing going, you know, but then the nineties came and the price went up and that was when, you know, it, it got pretty crazy. I mean, that was when people started to like, really like, uh, you know, that's when there, you would start to see like squads of people that were, you know, professional thieves, like going up in the humble Mendocino and, you know, setting up deals in the city and, you know, that's when you had to really be careful about how you insulated yourself from other people, which that's that thing I was talking about. Yeah, that was only in the 90s. Like, I feel like, I mean, you know, that was one of my questions, too. You know, going through, you know, you're traveling the world. You got these seeds, right? You're in Goa. You're in Thailand. You're in Bali. Like, you never, you know, you're in Lebanon. You never felt like, uh, like, holy shit, like, I, maybe I got myself in some shit right now or like, you know. Oh, constantly. Like, I mean, it's like, you know, there was there was several times in Afghanistan where I was like, I'm not going to make it. This is as far as it goes. You know, there was one time in Lesotho, uh, you know, down in South Africa when, you know, apartheid was still in effect. And I went to Durban and, um, you know, I was looking for some genetics that I had heard about in Amsterdam and, um, and, and, you know, and I just wanted to see the scene. I wanted to see like, I'd heard about these guys that grow. You just go on a whim. You're like, oh, shit, there's some genetics. I got to go down there and check it out. Yeah, because back then there was no internet. There was no, like, you know, you would hear something word of mouth from someone who is reputable, you know, and um, maybe you didn't hear it. Like, I would hear about what DJ Short was doing and what he was looking for. I, like, I never, like, had a relationship with that dude, but I knew people that knew him and they knew me. And so they would tell me like, oh, you know, Short's got this, this thing going, you know, that where he's uh, looking in this area, you know, of Thailand, you know, or like Burma for something. And I would be like, really, you know, it's a, it's a good time to take a trip to Thailand, you know, so I'm going to take a <laughs> week off and like go see if I can find this place. And, you know, and, and, what do you it say? You're like, oh, uh, knock, knock. Like, I uh, heard about some, right? Like, they're trying to insulate too, right? I mean, how do you like? Uh... Well, I mean, that's the thing is you just, I don't know. I guess from the way I was raised, I had developed, uh, you know, a hustle where like, 
you know, you just kind of, you could walk up on a cat somewhere yeah. and be like, oh, where's the stuff? You know, like, yeah. I'm, I'm here, you know, like, <laughs> like you're either going to fucking like throw me out of your hood or you're going to like welcome me, you know, let's yeah. get that over with now. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, a couple of times I've been thrown out of hoods, but most of the time I've been welcomed, you know, something about the way I learned to get down, like got me through the door in a lot of places. So that was how I was able to get a lot of genetics and to do a lot of business, you know, but the whole thing flipped around 20 years ago because then it became about like guys, you know, coming out of the woodwork and saying, you know, they invented this strain or that. I never even use the word strain. I always call them genetics. I call them cultivars. Yeah. Like strain thing. I'm very much detached from the high times culture and I've never really relied on grow shops for information or support. I learned uh, from a guy named Warren Weber in Bolinas, California, back in the early 80s. And he's like the godfather of organic farming, like how to make my own nutrients, how to use pest control that's natural. So like by the time grow shops came along, I remember the first grow shop in America was Berkeley Hydro. And, you know, in Berkeley. And I used to go in there in disguises because the feds were watching the place. They were like, they had <laughs> like a camera on the, I knew people that caught cases and, you know, they, the, in their cases, the feds would have a picture of them going into or coming out of Berkeley Hydro. Like, and so they're like, here, you went and bought this equipment to grow indoor cannabis or they called it marijuana back then. So it's like, you know, and that would be a conspiracy. If they could put you in enough places, they could prove a conspiracy to uh, manufacture marijuana. And that was, uh, that was the charge you wanted to avoid, um, you know, and they tried to stick me with it a couple of times. I had, you know, the foresight to invest in decent attorneys, um, you know, Tony Sarah, Ivan Gold, my last case was in 2004. And as soon as I got out of being locked up, um, I knew I needed a really good attorney because it was a pretty serious case. And uh, Kamala Harris had just beat, um, had, had just beat uh, um, the DA, uh -huh. uh, Han in San Francisco in the election. So Hallinan was out of a job. So I knew someone that knew him and they knew his son. And I just was like, hey, you know, ask him if he would represent me. And, you know, he's like, sure, it's 30 grand. And I just happened to have that much uh, on me. And yeah. so scraped it together, went to his house, gave him the 30 grand. And he got, that was a conspiracy case. And it was a three strikes case. And he, he was like, as a DA, he had been against three strikes. So he was like the perfect attorney to have. I just got lucky like that a lot, you know, like just kind of I learned game from dudes who like had been, you know, in the deepest, darkest holes and penitentiaries. And they told me like how to avoid that shit. And I really soaked that game up a lot because I knew that, you know, that was my enemy. Worse than getting killed really would be to just get locked up for a long time. And so I really put all my effort, like money didn't matter that much to me. Getting away with it is what was most important. So I invested a lot 
and trying to make sure I didn't get away with it. I would rather have a good attorney and be able to make bail than, you know, have a bunch of fancy cars and end up getting locked up for 20, 30 years. Wow. Wow. I mean, so what do you, what do you think now then, you know I mean? Cause now here we are we're on a, uh, on a podcast. Is it weird? Like, and I want to get into obviously the transition a little bit more, you know? Um, but you know, is it weird now? Like having that kind of mentality, that kind of mind state, uh, putting so much effort like that. And now like just being like, uh, you know, being willing to give it over and you know, all the, all the things going on now. I mean, I like, I kind of saw, I just had this epiphany. I was, I was up in one of my legacy grows in Nevada County um, seven years ago. And I was like, man, I don't know if I can do this anymore. You know, I'm just really getting by. And a lot of these youngsters have created this whole game where they're naming stuff and there's cookies, this, and you know, all, you know, all these crazy names, jelly, this, and, you know, cake that. And I'm just like, man, I'm really left behind, you know, because like I call all my genetics by where I got them, like Mazar Sharif or Abanabad or, or like Kandahar or like Kashmir or Lesotho or like wherever I got the genetic from, or if I got it from Oaxaca or, you know, um, San Cristobal or, or, you know, Cartagena, wherever I got the genetic from is what I would call it. And I would give the seeds to other people and they would like throw names on it, you know, like the whole OG Kush thing. I mean, you know, I don't even want to get into that, but I, I don't know if, if you believe that Kush came from Florida, then I will sell you a bridge in Manhattan <laughs> sale right now. But um, we'll clear it up. You know, it come saying, it, Kush comes from Afghanistan and like, I, I brought a lot of seeds to Florida back in the eighties. So I don't know if that OG Kush that those guys brought back from Florida was mine, but I know I spread a lot of Kush genetics in Florida in the eighties. So, I mean, you know, it's just, it just is what it is. I can't really like, I'm a curator of genetics. I don't own them. I didn't create them. They come from the old world, man. And it's like something that I try to explain to people that like the colonization of the world by Europeans in the last 500 years, they like went and took those cannabis seeds and the people that grew them and put them on ships as, you know, people in servitude. And they brought them to ports of call wherever they were colonizing. And so those seeds and those genetics have spread around the world for 500 years and I, I, I tend to not like the term hybrid too much. It's just, it's not a hybridization that happened. First of all, there's no such thing as sativa or indica. It's, uh, you know, the, the actual taxonomy has been obliterated by colonization. The moving around of the different genetic uh, cultivars through colonization by the, the Europeans that were trying to, to create sails and ropes for their ships in ports of call, like is what spread the cannabis around. The cannabis that my great grandmother grew in New Mexico came from conquistadors that brought the seeds with them from Mexico City. So it's like, 
you know, the Oaxacan gold and the, 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 that's a really famous and Acapulco gold, those genetics came from the Weigel, uh, indigenous people who got those seeds 200 years prior from the conquistadors. So, you know, it's like, there's all this kind of like cross pollination that's occurred and that's what's created through selection. That's what's created the current genetic selection that we have. You know, you have the greater selection that's happened in the Himalayas and in Africa and, and Asia. Um, that selection has been going on 10, 20,000 years. And then you mix, you bring those into all the colonized areas and you get like this huge cross-pollinization that has created all these genetics that we have today. So nobody made these genetics. It's like what you did was you curated them for a moment and you put a, a name on them. You know, usually you name them. It seems like people like to name stuff after breakfast cereals or treats or whatever. And you put that name on them to market them. And, you know, that's what you're, that's all you're really doing. The long game is, is to really sort through these genetics, find out which ones are connected to actual selected phenotypes and chemotypes from the original area. We know cannabis originated in the Himalayan foothills and in lower Asia. So it's like, we know that's where the original genetics are from. We just got to figure out, you know, we got to use science. We got to trace the DNA of these plants to figure out where they're actually from. And we're so far from being able to do that right now that we're kind of stuck, you know, with this kind of old drug dealer mentality that's been like regurgitated by high times and, you know, the latest cup winner or whatever. And people think that that's quality. And it's just, it, we're kind of missing out on so much that cannabis has to offer. And I think like as this whole business matures, people will learn that it's, it's more about the relationship with the plant than it is the marketing. Sure. And I think a lot of people are learning that right now, actually, because there's a lot of big companies failing and um, left and right because they don't, they don't get the relationship part. They think they can create a synthetic bond between people through advertising and the plant. And it's, it's failing left and right, you know? No, I mean, that's uh, good stuff. Tell I mean, what do you think about like, you know, you're talking about modern genetics, everything like this, you know, it seems like right now, I mean, there's like, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like been this focus on the highest THC, right? Getting the highest THC, all this stuff, right? I mean, how does that differ from how it used to be? It seems like there's a lot of kinds of different kind of focuses going on, right? And now it's just, and I think people now are trying to move a little bit away from that. Hopefully it's peaked right now, looking and digging more into the terpenes and everything else going on. Right. But what were you really looking for? You've traveled the whole world, you know, talking about genetics. I mean, were you just like, this got the best THC. I feel the most high, like how, what was the look there and how does that compare to today? I mean, it's, you know, I, they call it the entourage effect. It's all the cannabinoids working together. We, we still, don't have a total understanding of how a certain cannabinoid, we know we have an endocannabinoid system. We know it's got these receptors that, um, and we know we kind of have a, a binary understanding of how the receptors work. Uh, we know terpenes exist, but 
you know, and I say this to everyone that jumps on that terpene bandwagon, oh. terpenes are basically a solvent created by the plant. So how they come into play depends on how you ingest the, the plant material and how you prepare it. Because if you're just smoking flower um, or fruiting body, whatever you want to call the bud, Mm -hmm. um, there's a school of thought that it's a, it's a flower. There's another school of thought that it's a, a skinless fruiting body. Oh, wow. um, it's like when you apply a flame to that, when you dry it and apply a flame to it, um, terpenes gas off really quickly, you know, like at a, by a hundred degrees because they're a solvent and there's also esters which get left out of the conversation. There's ester, um, essences that are involved that aren't terpenes. So people kind of get confused. Terpenes aren't the only thing creating the smell. There's also ester, um, which is, you know, also a solvent and gases off pretty quickly. Um, you know, so it's like, there's probably a psychoactive trigger effect created when you, when you inhale the terpenes. Uh, your olfactory senses trigger something and we don't know exactly how that works yet. So, you know, that's, this is, these are all new things that need to be studied, but uh, definitely a high amount of THC has the most psychoactive effect. And so that's what everyone's chasing now, but I feel like they're chasing that, you know, at the regret of not, being able to pay attention to the other things that are beneficial about cannabis. Yeah. And I mean, sadly, when I talk to brokers and distributors uh, the last four years, that's really all they care about is the THC level yeah. in the test. And there's so many labs that are new that have popped up that we haven't really been able to determine how well they're doing their tests that, you know, you get all kinds of like readings. I mean, Someone was trying to tell me one of my cushions had a 37% THC on the test and they showed me the thing. And I was just like, you know, that's crazy to me because then I see these other cannabinoids here and that makes up, uh, you know, another like five, 6%. So you're telling me that like of this, this vegetative material here, over 40% of this is trichomes. You know, and it just doesn't look like that to me. Oh. It's like, you know, this doesn't look like a 60-40 split of cannabinoids and organic material. Because that's what, when you say there's that much higher percentage of THC, that's what you're literally saying is that this bud is like 40% oil, that it's trichomes, 40%, and then the other 60% is vegetative material. And it's like, when you look at it, you're kind of like, I don't see that many tri, you know, I, you see a lot of trichomes if it's grown well, but you know, some of this stuff that's grown with, you know, in some of the grow shop ways where they just buy a different jug of, you know, water with 0.1% active ingredients in it to add to the thing, to harden, you know, the finish and to, I don't, I don't think that that's, to me, that's not good cannabis. To me, that's not, it doesn't burn right. It, it's not satisfying. Okay. And, and, you know, people will, I see them think that it's satisfying because they've been told that's what good cannabis is. 
And so they've got it in their brain that that's where good cannabis is. I think what we're finding out is a lot of this, a lot of the cannabis effect is probably has to do with suggestive ideas put in people's heads. I think that that's where we're going to end up finding out because I see a lot of things that are passed off as like the, the best in the market right now. And I'm like, that's to me, that's not in my years of experience, that's not the best cannabis. And the effect it has on you is not, you know, there's much more uh, quality effects that you can get from other stuff. So uh, that's grown, you know, better than that, but might not look that way that you're told it has to look like that hard, like rock hard. I call it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I I'm not going to go into slagging on it. You know, I never hate a hustle, but it's just, that's not how I feel the quality of interacting with cannabis is best presented to people, you know? Yeah, and there's a couple of studies that have been done that back me up on that. There's that doctor up in Washington. She did two years of the blind studies with people that go to the dispensaries where they gave them cannabis. They didn't tell, let them see the label and tell them what it was repeatedly like i think it was something like 98 percent of the people in that study chose cannabis that they thought was a high thc cannabis and it ended up being a high cbd cannabis and it wasn't what they thought it was at all but they had been kind of mentally telling themselves that the cannabis that made them feel the best was the highest thc stuff and they you know when they were put in a blind study the stuff that they said made them feel the best actually had like 15% THC. So, you know, it's like, and that's like a really, you know, I mean that, that doctor is continuing that study and building on it. There's so much that we still don't know because we can't do federal actual medical studies. People are so limited Doctors and scientists are so limited on how they can study this. They have to apply to the DEA still and go, you know, and the, the samples they receive come from University of Mississippi. Those, I've seen that weed and it is not the best weed in the world to be <laughs> studying, learning about cannabis. So it's like, I mean, I'm hoping something like the MORE Act gets passed soon and we're descheduled so we can actually learn more about the plant because right now it's still federally illegal. It still has international restrictions on it. You know, once those are removed, we can study the plant more. And, you know, it's also like, there's also so much damage that was done by the drug war to so many communities and that needs to be addressed simultaneously. And I mean, you know, we got a lot of work to do. You know, it's like, I, I love to grow cannabis and I work really hard at it. Um, but now that it's this thing where I got to compete with people, you know, I have to keep my eyes on like all these different things. But at the same time, the thing closest to my heart is, you know, getting the people like, it's not truly legal until everybody's out of prison. You know, it's yeah. not truly legalized until everybody who has been had people and materials taken from them have been restored. You know, like I really feel that we can't truly say it's legal until that happens. I mean, 
you know, I mean, I definitely want to get into that for sure. But, you know, right, you were talking about something before, you know, in terms of genetics. And that's why I was interested because, you know, we we're talking before and obviously uh, you, you bring so much obviously to the table, you know, but with, with my experience, I was just talking about, you know, being a distributor myself, um, you know, and going up to Humboldt and, you know, and comparing that even, you know, just comparing that, how, uh, to compare to what you get now in dispensaries. It's like, that was way more enjoyable for me to smoke. You know, it was way more enjoyable on so many different levels. You know, the stuff now that, that they say, oh, this is the best shit. It just, to me, it doesn't, uh, you know, and I guess, you know, you get into that whole nostalgia thing or whatever, and people can say whatever they want. And, and it's just different, you know, it's just different. Um, but that's why I brought that up, you know, but it, definitely, you know, in terms of the legalization as well, you know, is that what you mean by, you know, you're talking about real legalization, right? And, you know, you're talking about here, you've been through the stages where you had to watch out for helicopters, right? And you had to smuggle things and you're going from country to country and not knowing what's going to happen from here to there. And now you're in a place, um, you know, where here you are on the open and everything. Does that feel different? And then speak to me more about what that real legalization is. You know, do you feel like, Right now, you know, obviously talking about people who are still locked up, right? You're able to, um, you know, have that foresight, like you said, and keep yourself out of trouble in those regards and everything. But there's so many people who it's just ridiculous um, what's gone on and how people are making money off of it. And, and yet people are sitting there rotting in jail for no reason. So I guess I'm a little bit all over the place, but what, what do you mean by real legalization? Is that what you mean by real legalization? Is Yeah, yeah. Is to me me it's not really legal until every person who's been locked up for it has been released everywhere and every person who has a record that's affected their lives has had that record expunged and anyone that's lost a loved one or like had their property confiscated or anything like that that needs something needs to be done about that you know what the government needs to admit they were wrong oh yeah okay. it's not really legal until they say we fucked up. We were wrong about this. This was, this was a horrible thing that happened for over a century. We used this plant as a wedge to, you know, subjugate people and like take from people and get what we wanted as a government, as far as control goes over people. And it's just, they need to admit that. Isn't that kind I mean, of what they wanted to do? I mean, they, they kind of got out of it what they wanted to do, right? I mean, the whole goal was to do exactly that, subjugate people, you know? I mean, uh, do you, well, do yeah, you, I mean, you see in your time that you we're going to be able to first, have that? When you, trace, when you trace the first laws against marijuana back to where they were, they were along the border and they were in New Orleans. And so those laws were specifically designed and there was a lot of, you know, there was there was a lot of uh, propaganda spread about, you know, Mexicans along the border that like go crazy and like band together and rape and pillage after they smoke loco weed, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, and and African-Americans in uh, New Orleans that, you know, the, so those were the first two places where laws were passed against it on a local level. And then, of course, those as those grew in the urban legend and years passed, other opportunistic people like, you know, uh, DuPont and Hearst. I mean, it's there's so much there's so much evidence that there was like a conspiracy to use 
the cannabis plant and the and and create a wedge that uh, divided communities and allowed the government to come in and seize property. And, um, you know, there was already, after the Civil War, there was already a huge uh, movement on the part of the government to criminalize African-Americans that were now freed slaves to keep them in place, to keep them in check. That's like, you know, that's real history. That's documented really well. Yeah. This fed into that. This was like a thing that fed into that. And I mean, the reason was, is like I said, through colonization, these port cities, like where the people like from India that the British had like taken onto their ships for the purpose of growing cannabis to make sails and ropes, who were also cannabis users, that these people were transported around the world with these seeds. They were put into places like New Orleans and, and Cartagena and Colombia and uh, Monterey in Mexico. They were put in those places to grow cannabis so they could support the maritime activities that were going on, you know, four or 500 years ago. Well, those people, you know, they, they became a part of that culture in those port cities. So in New Orleans, they became a part of that culture. And New Orleans was also one of the main places where slaves were sold. Wow. So it's like those two things happened simultaneously together. So of course there, there was like, you know, that became a thing that was a part of the culture. And when the slaves were freed, you know, they, everyone it's, you know, there's so much documentation that there was immediately efforts put at like hindering their ability to move around, criminalizing any activities that they would get involved in to, to be a, a control on them. And, um, you know, so the plant was there with them in those cultural areas, they were suffering. The plant tends to, I feel, the plant tends to seek people that are suffering out to help alleviate that suffering. And so there was a symbiotic relationship that was born mm. with uh, the uh, around New Orleans and like a lot of cultural connectivity. And as those people from New Orleans, you know, migrated like up north and to different parts of the West and the South, they brought their cannabis use and their cannabis relationship with them. And so as it grew, it became a thing then that like the, you know, the culture of white supremacy could look at as like a fear point that they could use to, you know, create fear in people. Yeah. So they did that. I mean, the, some of the first reports of, you know, like Negroes on cannabis in new Orleans or go back to like the 18, um, six, late 1860s to, so it, it's like, it's not like a new thing. It didn't just start with Hearst and Anslinger in the twenties. It had been building momentum for a long time. So it's like this, this illegalizing of the plant in order to initially control different people culturally and along the border, it was used to evict his, uh, you know, Mexican American people off their land mm -hmm. so they could then give the land to white settlers mm -hmm. so they could create a border of, you know, all that farmland along the border was gifted by the Homestead Act to white settlers after it was taken 
uh, a lot of times because of, of cannabis cultivation from the, the Chicano people that were already there on the land. So those are two instances where there's documentation that making marijuana this, this scary, illegal thing was actually like meant to, to keep people culturally in control and to take away any gains that they made. You know, if they started to have property and they started to have businesses, you know, the whole thing in New Orleans with like Storyville and stuff, you know, a lot of that culture in that part of New Orleans was built around, you know, people making jazz music in these clubs and uh, enjoying cannabis. You know, the Pancho Villa was abstained from alcohol and his followers that rode with him, um, the mestizos that rode with Pancho Villa, they did not drink alcohol. They just smoked cannabis. And so that made them kind of like abnormal and scary to the American troops that were guarding the border. And so, you know, in those early phases of the laws, the first laws made against cannabis, it, they were just localized laws. But then by the 20s, you know, there was all this push because DuPont had discovered how to make nylon Mm -hmm. So rope could be made from a petroleum product. They didn't need hemp anymore. Uh, you know, Hearst was in uh, cahoots with Weyhauser. And he was like, the hemp could be pulped to make paper. Weyhauser was like, I've got all this, these trees in Washington and Oregon. It, it threatens my ability to uh, dominate the paper market and you're the biggest newspaper salesman. So we got to work together on this. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, it's obvious what happened, you know, a few wealthy people got together and pushed for a national criminalization of marijuana. They created a name for it. They used a street name for it so they could intensify the fear factor around it. I mean, it was already a legal substance. It was in cough medicine. It was in a lot of different things. And when they finally were able to bring the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act into effect, you know, they could really just crush people. And that's when it started happening. I mean, you know, the, the reverberations of it like are really powerful because I mean, when you look at the California prison system and you look at what people call the Mexican mafia and the California prison system, it was direct result of the first uh, Mexican Americans that like had their businesses taken and were imprisoned over the new marijuana laws. And the, the reason it's called La M is because the M stood for Los Marihuanos. And so it was, they were being imprisoned unjustly. There was already a group of Mexican Americans that were involved in the alcohol trade during prohibition. They had their own prison gang and they were, um, you know, called the Doce, the Licores. And um, the guys coming in on the marijuana thing, they didn't want to be associated with those guys. So they made their own thing. And the, the 13th letter of the alphabet is the M. So they were Los Marijuanos. And that was like, a, a, you know, that whole 
underworld was created because of the illegalization of cannabis. They, they came down and crushed the culture so hard that, you know, what are those people going to do? Just roll over and give up? No, they formed a group in prison and became one of the most intensely feared prison gangs in the world um, because they shared a common bond and that they were unjustly treated in the, in the foundation of them all getting imprisoned. It was like because of an unjust law and they lost their livelihoods and their families suffered. And so, you know, when you look at it that way, when you see how it's affected, like the street drug trade, um, you know, it's created all these opportunities for heroin and cocaine to anywhere there was cannabis sold, like heroin and cocaine were easier to transport. And there were wealthy people connected to banks that were involved in smuggling it. So, you know, I mean, it, it's the, the whole criminalization of cannabis is responsible for a lot of suffering in the last hundred years, a lot, a lot more than people are really um, acknowledging or able to acknowledge. And it would be nice to see someone on a government official level, like finally come out and say, you know what, not just do we need to make this, you know, take away this drug schedule, which makes no sense at all it's not a narcotic it doesn't belong on a drug schedule especially at the highest level with heroin like that's a ridiculous thing yeah. it's like that needs to be eradicated but along with that there needs to be an immediate apology like a begging of forgiveness by the government for the history behind this for the 150 some years of suffering that has been you know like born on the backs of all these communities that were targeted and that, you know, this became a thing that was used to make all this profit and like create a prison population. So there could be a prison labor force to create more prisons. So you could have a prison industrial complex. I mean, it's really bad when you like step back and look at the history of it. It's really bad what's happened. And it's more than just, uh, you know, than just like, oh, they need to make the plant legal again. It's like, yeah, they need to make some reparations for the people like myself who, you know, it goes back generations. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the suffering, like my, my great grandmother lost that trading post. The Texas Rangers came through and took that trading post away wow. from her. Wow. And so, and they had to become, you know, they had to become migrant farm workers because they lost their livelihood, you know? And, it, and it's like, you know, that happened to so many people in the Southwest uh, because of the marijuana scare and because of um, what the government per perpetuated on behalf of wealthy industrialists who saw an opportunity to make a profit and cast aside a whole culture of people that, um, you know, just, basically wanted to make their own plant medicine. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day. It's, it's, I mean, it's all fascinating. You know, we hear about, you know, obviously um, prohibition and lumber and their place in it and obviously the racist um, history of it. But one thing I hadn't heard before, you know, was that actually the 500 year colonization history, 
right? And the slave trade, in fact, brought over these people and these genetics and everything else that later on those same people went on, you know, to, to sell them, to use them, and then later on to, to keep them in it. You know, we talk about the war on drugs being, um, you know, a way to keep people enslaved, but I didn't realize how really deep uh, and how true that really was. Now, that being said, you know, we're talking about people hundreds of years now, right? And these same kind of people, right? And now we're talking about people in, uh, you know, expecting the government to come out and, and admit for what they've done and apologize for what they've done. When in fact, these are the same descendants of those same people, right? Do you think that, that we're going to get an apology from them or like what? I mean, how can we really deal with this? Like in reality, like these people, are they really now going to see the error of their ways after hundreds of years of, of systemic, uh, you know, trying to keep doing this uh, exactly the way and creating the system? Um, or do you see that really we can't turn this around? We really can make something happen. I mean, the closer we get to, you know, like now we have this regulated market and everything and it's, it was completely, you know, overwhelmed by all this investment money and, you know, tech bro culture and everything. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and a lot of those guys are losing their shirts and yeah. stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, the cream separates to the top kind of, you know, eventually with this, like the real culture is going to make itself known. It always has. When you look yeah. at the history of it, like, you know, over the last 500 years, when you go back, like, when you go, like, along, you know, the Mazar al-Sharif Road or through the Khyber Pass and you see the people there that have been growing cannabis for, you know, longer. I remember a guy told me, I was like, how long have you guys been growing cannabis here? And he's like, oh, the first people that grew cannabis here speak a language that none of us know anymore. Wow. And I, and that was like that concept to me was really fucking like, I was like, wow, like you're to, to be in a place doing something and you're like, yeah, the people that originally started doing this, we don't even really know who they were, but we're the people here now doing it. And we're just doing it the same way that the people that were once here that spoke another language and called this all by another name. And we don't even know what those words are anymore. Like that's how long it's been going on, you know? So it's the human relationship with the cannabis plant, I feel is, you know, it's similar to the human relationship with like dogs or cats. Like you can't really pinpoint exactly you know, maybe someday science will be able to, but at this point, you don't know when in human development, we first domesticated a dog or a cat, but obviously it happened because there's domestic dogs and cats going back into the beginning of written history. So it predates our understanding of history where it's been written down and recorded. So it's like, it goes back the same way with cannabis our relationship with cannabis predates our written history it was something that was important to human development and you know it's one of those things like i after going to all the places in the world i've gone and seeing all the cultures that are deeply connected to the plant i just um 
you know, one day I, I, it just, you know, maybe I was like smoking a really good joint of some stuff. I grew up on a nice ridge and humble looking out over, you know, like redwood trees that were thousands of years old. And I, it just hit me and it was like, man, who's to say the plant didn't domesticate us, you know? Yeah. Yep. I mean, the way everything has worked out for us in our development it's always been there. We have an endocannabinoid system that's in us that was developed because of our relationship with the plant. You know, who knows, 100,000 years ago, maybe. You know, maybe eating the seeds of cannabis plant is what allowed, you know, early hominids to develop a bigger brain. You know, we don't know. Yeah. And maybe the plant knew that by creating, like, terpenes that would attract us to it, that it would find a cultivator that would keep it going. Wow. So, you know, the symbiotic relationship between us and cannabis is older than ancient, you know? It, it like, really does predate humans even. It's back to our hominid ancestors that, um, that we evolved from. And we'll, you know, it's gonna take a long time to unravel that whole story. But when you look at it from that, point of view that then it's like you know all this stuff for the last couple hundred years has been really petty in, in comparison to that relationship like all this attempt to control and uh you know legalize this plant it's like the the human relationship to this plant is way deeper and goes back way farther and i think like you know, it was something that they attempted to do because the industrialization allowed, you know, people to uh, get a bunch of wealth together and emphasize manufacturing over farming. And, you know, so it led to this and, you know, different offshoots of that type of control of a world economy that developed, you know, our unfortunately it developed from a white supremacist yep. uh, state of mind because that's who the colonizers were. And that's who developed that industrialization and kind of has held the world hostage for the last couple hundred years with it. And one of the things that they did was they interfered with that relationship between humans and the cannabis plant. Yep. But now it's like, you know, it, I think, what's been proven, especially with the super intensified war on the plant the last 50 years is they can't win. They can't eradicate the plant. They can't get rid of the cultures that it originated from. They can't, you know, they can't even control the culture that they've created by, you know, oppressing us and imprisoning us. So now we're at that point where it's like, we're going to like move out of that era into a new era where we get to rediscover the plant and the plant has always been there for us. So, you know, I mean, I, I worked a couple of years ago, you know, running 600 acres of hemp in Ventura County just to see what that felt like, you know, it was an opportunity. These guys needed a consultant and um, I came in and I did it and pulled it off and got all this high CBD hemp. And it was, um, you know, it was just something to see acres and acres of cannabis plants like that, you know? And um, the thing about it is, is like, 
you, you can't, you can't suppress the plant in that way. You can grow for fiber, like side by side, really close together, but you trying to control the cannabinoid production is ridiculous. You got to just let that go. So it's like, you know, they need to just allow the hemp in the areas where agriculture, where it would benefit agriculture the most. I don't think California is necessarily one of those places, but there's a lot of places in the Midwest and the South where hemp farming was, you know, done for hundreds of years. And it's like, they should do it again. You know? Yeah. There's a lot of benefit from hemp farming that, you know, would definitely help the environment and stuff. But hemp is cannabis. It's all cannabis. It's all that plant that human beings started eating the seeds of in the steps of the Himalayas a hundred thousand years ago. So it's like, you know, I, I just, I just feel like we're entering an age of possibility, but man, just, it's going to take a long time for it to get sorted out because we're carrying a lot of baggage from, a, uh, you know, at least a hundred years of superimposed oppression. And it's going to take a while for, you know, and it's, it's commonly woven into the fabric of all these other things, issues that we're faced with, that we have to do something about with racism, with the, you know, law enforcement, with all these issues that we need to do something about now, because it's adversely affecting our whole psyche as, as, as human beings on this planet. So it's like, you know, that's when I talk to people about it, I'm like, it's not just about the plant and making it legal again or like profiting off it. It's really about like, you know, this is going to take probably a couple hundred years to sort this out because the problems that are interconnected with it are not problems that we got just in the last 50 years, you know, yeah. like the, yeah. the militarized policing and the political use of industrial um, economics to, you know, take resources away from people. I mean, that stuff's been going on for a few hundred years. And, you know, now we are on the brink of really fucking things up because of it. So now we gotta, we gotta figure a way out of this. We've gotta create new alliances and, you know, we gotta do away with what isn't working anymore. But that's like really hard to do because, you know, I mean, just look at the last year. The last year is really when people talk about all these issues, it gets very emotional. And I mean, you know, we almost had a coup in America because of it, you know, and and who knows what will happen just because it's hard for people to look at the true history and swallow that yeah, pill. They want to pretend like it's not a thing and, you know, talking out of both sides of their mouth. You know, because like you said, it's hard to 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 accept that thing. We want to have the progress, but we don't want to accept the mistakes that go that's gone on. You know, yeah. that's like one of the biggest things and the mistakes that continue to go on. You know, you're talking about, you know, a word that continues to come up is colonizers, you know, and there's a lot of anger in, in our industry. You know, the you know, the colonizers that are coming in now, you know, that are have no interest in the plan, have no passion for the plant you know, have, don't even have a mind for the plan. You know, they can't even bring their business mind to the plan and to try and do it in a way that respects what's been done in the culture and everything like that. It's just, 
it's it's a dead kind of uh, kind of thing that's that's being brought in, you know. And like you said, these people are continuing to show that they're not that they're not succeeding, you know. That money is getting thrown in, and if you don't respect what's going on, you don't bring in the right kind of minds, and you're seeing it over and over again. And I appreciate what you said so much, you know, about um, you know uh, the plan, you know that that it's the plan is is uh, kind of choosing. And that was kind of something that I, I'm glad that you brought that up because it's something that I've thought, you know, it's like the, you know, the, like I've said, you know, like in Toy Story, I say the cloth chooses who comes and who goes and the plant chooses who comes and who goes, you know, where it's an, it's a, it's a conscious uh, thing that's going on around the world. Right. It's not just something that's just, you know, simple, just done on the, by the wayside, you know? So it's definitely, we're seeing that people who are succeeding it or people who love this. And I, I'm glad you said that. Cause I, you know, I, obviously who doesn't want to have change overnight. Right. But you, you know, you're saying this a couple hundred years that we still have to work things out. And uh, that's something that I haven't really put thought into, you know, that it may take that long, you know, but definitely with so many wrongs that have been done hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, that's a short amount of time then, you know, because uh, people think that it's going to be done in this administration or in this, yeah, it's just like, you know, a little bit of hopeful thinking, when there's uh, still so much uh, wrong that's been that's been that's going on, you know, like you said, you know, everybody, the people need to be released and expunged, uh, reckoning to be expunged, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, you know. So, um, yeah, it's it's um it's gonna take it's gonna take a lot for like all those dots I connected. I mean, to to yeah. a lot of people, that's like crazy talk, you know. Yeah, and it just, I mean that's that's reality. That's you know, take it in, but it's like it's you can't just you can't just pass one law like Prop sixty four, and that's going to make it all better. As we know, know? the laws are and within Prop sixty four, within Prop sixty four, there's like crazy remnants. Like there's this whole section of Prop sixty four that criminalizes any adult ever exposing a minor to cannabis. And I look at that, that, that was the thing that like bothered me right away because from my perspective as a troubled youth that found cannabis to be something that was stabilizing and soothing and like helped me get through these adolescent struggles, um, you know, like I, that's hard for me to wrap my head around that, you know, I can't pass this on to my kids until they're 18 you know a lot of my kids are over 18 and i passed it on to them already but you know i i got one that's under 18 i can't pass this on to her because it would be a criminal act and i have a record so that would be like you know they could make it into a weird thing and i'm looking at it like well if she exhibits some of the issues that i have by the time she's an adolescent then you know I mean, obviously, I can't directly give her cannabis, but I hope that she would come in contact with it because of how it helped me. I mean, you know, but that's weird because I should be able to just give it to her and see if it works or not. But you can't do that because Prop 64 criminalized that specifically. And I mean, it's still criminal for an adult to give a kid alcohol. But, you know, how many parents allow their kids to drink at home because they'd rather have them drinking at home? So it's kind of that whole thing where it's like, you know, we really need to 
kind of be more honest about how laws are made because, you know, it's, and the effect that laws have on people. I mean, that's where my interest is right now, a lot watching this whole thing unfold because, you know, like you said, like I'm watching a vice president who's groundbreaking and that she's a woman and a woman of color and that's amazing, right? But she also, like, I know, I have close friends she put in prison. Yeah. And one of whom um, is getting out next year, who's been in for 20 years. Wow. wow. So it's like, you know, these are, you know, it's, it's hard for me in that respect to right. celebrate the breakthroughs there, knowing that, you know, there's also been an impact and I, you know, on the campaign, she walked back a lot of those stances that she had as a DA and as a prosecutor. Um, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see how this unfolds, you know. And, and, and it's like I'm keeping a close, close eye on this because, you know, I, I'm just, uh, you know, now that I'm out in the open and I'm doing my thing, I want to lend my voice to, uh, you know, that's why I do things like this now. That's why I speak out publicly about it now. I started doing that like around 2015. You know, I was a member of the California Growers Association then with Hezekiah uh, Allen, and I joined the Sonoma County Growers Alliance. Uh, Tawny Logan was leading that. And we went to Sacramento and we talked to, you know, the assembly persons and we tried to give feedback on what cannabis and what the legacy market was like and you know trying to give the best information we could and sometimes they listened sometimes they didn't you know and there was all this pushback too like in Sonoma County there was a ton of pushback and they you know they really hurt the ability after Prop 64 passed uh, they just mishandled and mismanaged the whole thing about you know giving permits out and it, it was just terrible you know you, and my you know that burned. thing's corrupt too you know so maybe it was mismanaged maybe was, people are just getting rich off of it and you know it's a whole well like, i mean you know it's, it's another, just uh, it's gonna take it's gonna take a while you know that's when i started really realizing like yeah you can't just pass one law or even a couple of laws i mean it's gonna literally be this leapfrog effect through the next 200 years to get this right. And so, you know, I don't expect to experience true legalization in my lifetime, sadly, but maybe my grandkids might see it, you know? Look, I mean, for you, right? Your great grandma was at a place where it was legal, where they had their stand, right? And then your uncles, your aunts, all these people, they, they, they were in a place where it was illegal now. And we talked about, we opened up about how things come full circle, right? So, I mean, uh, pretty, be, pretty, be pretty apropos, you know, to see your grandkids being able to uh, experience a world there. And you as well, you know, that uh, uh, being able to see uh, a world where, uh, where, the, where the plant is thriving and people respect the plant and people respect the culture and the, and the elders, like, like you said, you know, beforehand. So, I mean, I appreciate so much as well, you know, you come in and lending your voice, 
being able to share stories that, you know, like I was saying, if you're not giving over, then where do they go, you know? So I really appreciate uh, you coming on here and doing this, you know, as we start to wind down, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, I ask all my guests and I really love to hear from you, to, you know, because of uh, everything you've seen, you know, how do you define success, whether it be professionally, personally, spiritually, what does success look like for you? I mean, it starts with family. You know, I, I, I grew up like the way I did and, you know, because of the laws and the kind of outlaw uh, implications that were put on my family and myself, you know, it was a struggle to be close. And, you know, I wasn't able to be around my kids all the time. And, you know, now I can be, and now I'm around my grandkids. My grandkids have never known me to be arrested or anything. So like, that's a huge chain. My kids would have to talk to me while I was, locked up a lot and um yeah you know or while I, I had to avoid going to see them for their birthdays or christmas because wow. on the run so um that's a trip i mean you, that a place where you you know having to make amends or you know you're not there for the birthdays and now it's like uh, vindicated or maybe not i'm not sure i mean how, how it, yeah how, no i mean my relationship with my kids is is amazingly close now and amazing. i'm grateful for that and but it's been a lot of work you know getting to that point and that's why i know it's going to take a lot of work for our society to get out of yeah. that era of prohibition because of how much work it's taken me just to get where i'm at now and how much more work i got ahead of me you know, and I, but I just keep, I just keep doing it. I keep working at it, you know, trying to build this place. And, you know, I, my, my biggest farm that I put all my money into in 2016 got wiped out in the Santa Rosa fire in 2017. And, yeah. and, you know, and it's just been like that, this whole, this whole like regulated market thing has been kind of a comedy of errors for me where it's like, you know, I'm kind of the guy that like successfully distributed and manufactured cannabis products for 40 years. But it's like, you know, I can't I, I, I watch I can't get investment money like, you know, some tech bro from the Silicon Valley is like, you know, give me one hundred million dollars and I'll start a company. And people are like, yeah, this is a good idea. And, you know, they take that million and flushes it down the toilet or spends it on, you know, scantily clad models and yachts and whatever and doesn't grow any good cannabis. Yep. And I'm just like, what the f yep. you know, It's just crazy. But I mean, that's the success to me is like trying to keep your family safe. And, you know, that's how I'm looking at this moving forward everything I'm building now is about leaving something for the next generation and speaking the truth to power on what, you know, our relationship with cannabis is and, um, you know, and just really trying to drive. I mean, to me, that would be the successful thing would be to like throw my pebble in the pond and create some ripples that make some other people think about this and maybe, better ideas come and like we get a better industry and and maybe that it's not even an industry maybe that it's more of a community you know maybe it doesn't have to be about profit i mean i'm in a profit driven game right now but 
I don't know, like, I, dude, I like I made a, quite a bit of money in the '90s at five thousand dollars a pound. At On that Wall Street to stuff, pound a year. <laughs> you know, I made quite. I, I made a good bread, and yeah. I I overpaid people on purpose. You know, I paid trimmers two hundred fifty a pound cash, and I did that because that I wanted the community to to be able to thrive. You know. So I gave a lot of like what I made in money back. And, um, and that's kind of how I'd like to see this go. I'd like to see the people that rise to the top as far as growing and distributing it and marketing it and selling it to the public. I'd like to see them be able to make enough money that they can pay everyone well and share the wealth, you know, because that's how it should be. For me, that's how it always worked best. You know, it's like your family does good and your community does good. Then, you know, at the end of the day, that's success. I love it. I love it. That's, that's the real man. And I love, I love just hearing, you know, that, that story, it touches me, you know, I mean, uh, having that relationship with your kids and uh, must not been easy on the, on all parties. Right. But, uh, you know, the grandkids and everything and how, how important that is to you. And, um, you know, I mean, th this has been uh, super special for me. That's for sure. You know, as we close, how can our listeners find out more about you? I know more what you guys are doing there, Razor Grown, everything else. I mean, you got a lot going on uh, and connect with you. Um, I mean, we're going to have a website up soon for the OG Razor Grown products and Mystic Spring Farms. Um, that, that'll be coming out. You know, we're just trying to get the production quality. Okay. But, um, you know, we got that and it's like, I'm trying to actually put a little bit of money aside to open a, a cannabis hash museum here in the business yeah. part. So that, that would be like one of the things, you know, that I would want to, to be able to leave like an educational space, um, you know, where people can come and learn and teach. And, you know, that, that's something that I'm going to be working on all year to hopefully have that open next year. Amazing. Amazing. Can't wait. Well, uh, Razor, it's been amazing. It's been such a pleasure for me and I know for everybody out there. So thank you for being on. Thanks for jumping on with us. And thank you everybody for listening at home. Uh, Razor, really appreciate you. Really appreciate you giving everything over and uh, good luck to you and the rest of this year and beyond. Yeah, Maynard. Thanks so much, man. Peace, brother. Thanks for listening to Dank Discussions. We are so grateful for each and every one of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave a review. We want to continue making dank content you want to hear, so give us some feedback about the topics you want covered. Feel free to reach out to us at grow at calican.com. That's G-R-O-W at C-A-L-A-C-A-N-N dot com. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter for our latest updates.